Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we connect trending, evidence-based pharmacotherapy to your pharmacy and medicine practice. Today, pharmacists Jake Galdo and Jeff Wall discuss new studies that aim to change the game in diabetes care, including cost and therapeutic options. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University and Internal Medicine Clinical Pharmacist at Methodist Hospital here in Des Moines. Welcome to the show. Um, I hope uh, your, your days and your weeks are going good um, as we approach fall when this is being recorded. Um, and actually, we've had pretty good weather here so in my neck of the woods. So hopefully you're doing well wherever you're at. Uh, we aim to be the uh, a podcast that gives you the latest uh, evidence-based uh, information as far as studies, guidelines, stuff like that, uh, really focused on pharmacotherapy because of course we're pharmacists here uh today i'd like to welcome my frequent co-pilot and the guy who really keeps this uh podcast going jake galdo so welcome to the program jake Thanks, Jeff. I'm really happy to be here. So today we are going to uh, talk about two studies that were recently published, uh, I think just two weeks ago in the Wheeling Journal of Medicine uh, that have some serious implications for the treatment of diabetes. Um, and I mean, really up there with some of the some of the seminal studies in treatment of, of diabetes, like the DCCT study and the UKPDS study. This will, I think, join those as, as a study that really tries to answer some basic questions about how we treat diabetes. Um, so, uh, and it, it was actually two studies, both called the GRADE study, and we'll talk about that in a second, but they basically uh, divided the, this wealth of information into two studies, and we're going to talk about both studies today. And so the first part of the GRADE study, uh, we'll talk about first, obviously, and, and you know, to kind of, kind of give a scope of the problem, 30 million Americans in the United States, let me repeat that number, 30 million Americans in the United States have type 2 diabetes. Uh, that number always shocks me, more than 500 million worldwide, and, and the annual incidence in the United States is actually 1.5 million cases, and, and that may include pre-diabetes, but still, that just that just, just a staggering number of people who have uh, type 2 diabetes and are getting type 2 diabetes every year. We all know, I think, that you know, while there's some uh, uh, disparity between the major guidelines, most people agree that a hemoglobin A1C of less than 7% is really the target for most uh, patients with type 2 diabetes. Uh, yes, there may be some cha- differences between what guidelines you take a look at, but I think most people agree that, that, that uh, you know, anything less than 7% is probably pretty well uh, controlled diabetes. Um, and of course, the, the reason for that is that is that we want to try and decrease the complications associated with diabetes, the macrovascular complications, including coronary disease, stroke, and peripheral arterial disease, and the microvascular complications, including diabetic nephropathy, neuropathy, and retinopathy, right? And so, you know, we know for a fact that controlling blood sugars uh, traditionally, and if you look at the DCCT study and the UKPDS study, both show that they decreased microvascular complications, but was a little bit less clear about macrovascular complications. And of course, in the last five years, we now know that drugs like the SGL2 drugs and the GLP drugs also have a, a particularly strong effect in macrovascular complications. But the answer, the question that the, the great studies are trying to answer is, you know, everybody kind of agrees that metformin is kind of your first medication in most patients with type 2 diabetes, as long as they don't have a big contraindication to it. And so, you know, the, I think the ADA guidelines mention that and the new algorithm that they've started using in the last couple of years really kind of stratifies by what the patient characteristic, whether they're at high cardiovascular risk, whether they have kidney disease, et cetera, et cetera. But again, most everybody agrees that metformin is kind of your, your first drug that you want to uh, use to try and achieve that A1C of less than 7%. The purpose of this study is, okay, well, everybody agrees that metformin is the, is the first drug. What should be our second glucose-lowering medication? And so the name of the, these two studies is the glycemia reduction approaches in type 2 diabetes, 
a comparative effectiveness or grade study. Um, and again, the point of the study was, okay, we, we, all these patients are on neformin, we're then going to look at different uh, other medications for that second medication that we add on, trying to, to, to get glycemic control, uh, major glycemic control done in the study, basically. So as you might imagine, it has to be a fairly large study. This was a multi-center comparative effectiveness study. It would be impossible to blind the study because of the drugs they used. It was sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. Um, uh, the, obviously, the participants and clinic staff were aware of their treatment assignments. However, the investigators at the laboratories, reading centers, and members of the adjudication committee who kind of ran the study were unaware of treatment assignments and the identif uh, identity of each uh, participant. So again, there'd be no way to blind the study. It had to be an open-label study. They included patients with type 2 diabetes who recruited at 36 clinical centers. And, and I think they did a really good job here trying to, to get a cohort of patients that are you know, pretty representative of type 2 diabetes. For example, they wanted to uh, basically enrich the study with patients who are African-American or, 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 or Latino, because those patients tend to have uh, type 2 diabetes at a higher rate than white patients do. Um, they had to have had uh, uh, the uh, diagnosis of type 2 diabetes after the age of 30, again, with the exception of American Indians or Alaska Natives, who they could have at least 20 years old, because again, in that population, uh, diabetes is very, very common. Um, at initial screening, the known duration of diabetes had to be less than 10 years in the participants, and they had to be at least on 500 milligrams of metformin per day without any other glucose-lowering medications for the previous six months, and were willing to participate in a run-in therapy, and uh, if since or two of the medications were injectable, they had to be willing to learn how to do injection therapy and use it, basically. At that point, once they were included in the study, the metformin dose was increased to at least a gram per day, and then they tried to get up to two grams per day in patients, as long as they didn't have too bad of side effects. To be in the study, patients had to have, had to have an A1C of somewhere between 6.8 to 8.5% at the end of the run-in period. So at the end of the 6 to 14 weeks of being on up to two grams of metformin, they had to have an A1C of 6.8 to 8.5. If you were listening and going, well, gee, most of my patients have A1Cs far above that, I thought that too when I read this, you know, I mean, it, it, again, I, I tend to see patients in the hospital uh, where they're, where, you know, a lot of things can, can affect, you know, we tend to see patients who have out of control diabetes. And, uh, you know, I'd be very happy to see many of my patients have uh, an A1C just in that range. But I mean, the point was these patients weren't, you know, terrible out of control diabetics who had sky high A1Cs. The treatment, uh, they used four medications uh, that were approved by the FDA, had to be in common use with metformin at the time of the trial launch in 2013. So uh, they basically, randomize these patients to receive insulin glargine, right? Uh, and they could start at an initial dose of 20 units and then, and then go up as needed to reach uh, glycemic control. Uh, the the sulfonylurea glomipuride, not a sulfonylurea. I usually try not to recommend sulfonylureas anymore, but this is the one they used. Uh, they started at two milligrams to a max of eight milligrams. Uh, the, uh, the GLP-1 receptor antagonist ligliritide, uh, which they started at 0.6 and, and, and escalated to a max dose of 1.8. And the DPT-4 inhibitor Glyptin at a dose of 100 milligrams with the dose adjusted according to kidney function, basically. And so those are the four medications. So we had an esfonyurea, insulin, a GLP-1 drug, and a DPP-4 inhibitor. Now you may say to yourself, why didn't they use an SGL-2 drug? Because this was the study that was started almost 10 years ago, and the SGL-2 drugs were just, they weren't even available in the United States at that point. So that's why they didn't use these medications, basically. They basically then kept them on the medication, and the study was up to five years long. So I think we could all agree that five years is a nice long period to assess these patients and, and see if, if we could get good glycemic control and, and some of the other stuff we're going to talk about here. Um, if they uh, did not receive glycemic control of less than 7.5% of their hemoglobin A1C, then uh, glargine was added uh, to all the participants. And then after that, uh, uh, the patient's uh, uh, home uh, physician or primary care physician who was in charge of 
of dealing with their diabetes could adjust the therapies after that as needed, basically. Um, the outcomes of the study, uh, the primary outcome was what they termed, and I, I don't know if I really like this term, they called a primary metabolic failure, which in English just means that they had a glycemic uh, N1C of, of 7.0 or higher. So, I mean, I, I'm, I don't know, primary metabolic fa failure sounds pretty, you know, extreme to me, but that's what they, that's what they called it. And basically, so if, if you had an A1C of greater than 7.8%, you, that was the, the, the outcome um, um, of, of, of the study, you could actually have this multiple times, right? Because some people might have higher A1Cs than lower and then higher depending on what's going on with them and how much they're eating and all this other stuff, right? So they checked every six months uh, um, and and uh, if they had one primary outcome, then that's that was counted for the study. But if, if you didn't have two and then you had one, then that counted as well, because again, this was a, was a five-year study. If your A1C was greater than 9% in the study, so, you know, again, they had to start with, with below that, but for whatever reason, your hemoglobin A1C went higher after they started the second medication then they had more frequent checks to see if, if that was basically confirmed. So that was the primary outcome. Uh, they had other outcomes, uh, like secondary metabolic outcome was an A1C greater than 7.5. They also looked at adverse effects, including severe hyperglycemia warranting treatment, as well as pancreatitis and other types of cancer. Again, especially with the GLP-1 drugs, there's some concern of that. And this was all adjudicated by committee. Uh, when, this, when we take a look at the stats, as you might imagine, this is going to be a complex study. So uh, it was an intention to treat study. They estimated they need about 5,000 participants to find about a 25% relative risk reduction in treatment failure among the different groups. They used uh, Cox proportional hazards and a Kaplan-Meier plot uh, to take a look at this stuff graphically, which certainly makes sense. Um, and then they also did a global log rank test uh, uh, to test for differences among the four groups because they didn't just look at a like, police, they actually had pairwise comparisons of the, of the four different agents. So when you do that, of course, you lose power really, really quickly. And so they had to adjust for that uh, with the log rank test. They also stratified patients, as you might imagine in the study, by things like their age, by their race and ethnic group, by their body mass index, um, their duration of diabetes, and their baseline hemoglobin A1C levels, which totally makes sense as well. So again, the, the, the average duration of the study was five years. So again, I, 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 was, I, I think this is a long enough study to actually look at their outcomes. Uh, and uh, I was astounded uh, that, that the retention adherence was very high. 94% of patients completed the final visit. And in a study with 5,000 patients and diabetes, that actually really surprised me. I, I wouldn't have expected a a, a study like this to have that level of retention and adherence to, to trial visits. Um, so that was pretty interesting. Um, uh, as far as, as the, the, the participants themselves, again, remember that these patients were put on metformin, then they were randomized to one of four different uh, uh, therapies. And then if that didn't work, they were put on glargine. Uh, they, they did look at patients who had to be on more medications. So either basically outside the trial protocol and about somewhere between 29 uh, and 30% of patients, unfortunately, had to have that happen with the vast majority of it being after two years of randomization, showing once again that, that in many patients, type 2 diabetes is a progressive disease that gets worse over time, not usually better over time. Uh, um, the duration of the assigned trial treatment was about four years. So again, these patients you know, were on these, study, on these drugs for a long, long time. Uh, the maximum dose of, of assigned treatment of Glargine actually was 51 units was, was the maximum dose. So again, you know, showing that these patients were somewhere between 20 and 50 units, getting a pretty stiff dose of, of, of 
of insulin, uh, 5.4 milligrams of glomipuride, 1.6 milligrams of glirotide, and about 100 milligrams of citagliptin because most people tolerate citagliptin pretty well. So that's kind of the, some of the baseline. They did note that there was a higher frequency of discontinuation in the glomipuride and the glirotide groups. 23% uh, of patients in each group uh, actually had to have a, a discontinuation. And as you might imagine, it was, it was mostly due to, to hypoglycemia in the former and nausea and, and stuff like that in the latter. So then overall in the, in the five-year uh, follow-up, uh, as far as results are concerned, 71% of the cohort had a primary outcome event. So again, I mean, 71% of patients did not meet their, their, their goal of a hemoglobin A1C of, of, of less than 7%, um, which is, again, pretty staggering when, when you really take a look at it. The highest frequency was in the citagliptin group. So 77% of those patients did not, did not uh, have a hemoglobin A1C of less than 7%. Uh, and then it was intermediate frequency in the, in the glimiparide group with the lowest frequency in the ligularitide and the glargine group. And glargine actually had, even with insulin, 67% of these patients did not reach their glycemic goals. When they took a look at uh, the, the differences then using the, this log rank test, uh, they basically found that, that citagliptin was statistically worse than the other medications in, in, in reaching a goal A1C, again, confirming a, you know, a long-held belief that DBP4 drugs just really don't lower hemoglobin A1C well, usually only about 0.5%. Um, when they did the six pairwise comparisons between the groups, uh, they found that, that uh, the odds of, a, uh, of having a primary outcome event was significantly lower with glargine than citagliptin, and then, then with glomerulide, uh, and, and the, the big difference was, was glargine had a 29% relative risk reduction compared to citagliptin. Um, the rates of secondary outcomes and tertiary outcomes was actually very similar. So basically, on the whole, the vast majority of patients did not reach hemoglobin A1C goal. And as you might expect, the, the, the numbers were best with insulin and were worse with, with, with citagliptin, basically. So again, not really surprising and all that. As far as safety is concerned, um, the, as you might imagine, the glimiparide and glargine groups had a higher incidence of hypoglycemia. Not really surprising there. Um, uh, whereas the ligurotide group had a higher incidence of nausea and vomiting. 2.2% uh, of patients in the glimiparide group had hypoglycemia bad enough that it needed to be treated. Um, and then, uh, uh, interestingly, that was much higher than glargine, which was only 1.3%. So it was very surprising that uh, the sulfonylurea actually had or, uh, a worse hypoglycemic episodes than, than, than insulin did, uh, though maybe not. I mean, I, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why sulfonylureas are, are, are really fading from view is in addition to them not having macrovascular protection offense, especially in the elderly. I think I think that we realize that, that hypoglycemia is actually far more common with the sulfonylureas than we ever thought they were, basically. There are no differences in pancre pancreatitis or cancer. And as you might imagine, with the GLP drug, about uh, there was about a four kilogram weight loss in general. So as far as this study, this part of the, the, the grade study, the authors realize that, that the vast majority of their patients did not get a target of seven, uh, uh, hemoglobin A1C of less than 7% no matter really what medication they use. I mean, the differences were really actually pretty small between them. Remember that, that even with glargine, you know, 67% of patients didn't reach their hemoglobin A1C. So, I mean, you know, reading the study, my first thought was, you know, should we start treating, you know, um, um, insulin like we do hypertension, that if your hemoglobin A1C is high enough, we just automatically start combination therapy, which is not something we usually do at this point. Um, so, you know, I, that, that was really kind of the big takeaway is that, you know, even with, with two drugs on board, the vast majority of patients did not reach 
their goal hemoglobin A1C. And, you know, that tells me maybe we need to be more aggressive up front, you know, but at what point do you stop, you know, using medications in these patients? And do we do four or five, you know, medications or, you know, what point do you just say, look, we're just going to tune up your insulin until we can get your A1C under control. That's going to be a difficult question to answer, I think. So, so that's the first part of the study. The second part of the study, the second study that came from this uh, was looking at complications from the same study. So it's the same patient, same statistics, same, you know, uh, uh, methods and everything like that. But instead of looking at glucose control, they were looking at the incidence of microvascular and macrovascular outcomes. And we're going to talk about that part of the study right after a word from our sponsor, CE Impact. Are you looking for a place to collaborate with your peers and get CE? Download the CE Impact app. The CE Impact app is a place where pharmacists and pharmacy technicians can take CE courses, attend virtual events, and network with their peers right from your phone. Download the CE Impact app today and get started. So we're back talking about uh, the grade studies or study, if you like, um, uh, taking a look at uh, what drug to use as a second drug um, in patients who are already on metformin type 2 diabetes. We've talked previously about the glucose control of these patients. Now, the second part of the study with, again, the, all the same you know, uh, uh, methods and patients and all that stuff with the first part of the study is taking a look at complications, so mi microvascular and macrovascular complications. So they did divide them in, 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 into the, 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 the two big arms. Arms, as, as it were. And, and so they looked at microvascular complications and the outcomes uh, in that study. Uh, they looked at, at uh, um, factors related to microvascular and macrovascular outcomes, including hypertension, which they defined as the, as the ADA and American Heart Association is a measured blood pressure of at least 140 over 90. Patients with dyslipidemia, which they basically said were patients who had triglyceride levels in 150 and HDL of less than 40 in men and less than 50 in women, um, uh, or, or the use of lipid-lowering medications, basically, in these patients. Um, so if they were on a statin, that counted. So that was the risk factors that they dialed into to the macrovascular outcomes. For microvascular outcomes, they assessed based on the urinary albumin to creatinine ratio, which they measured every six months. Uh, remember that if your albumin to creatinine ratio is greater than 30, you have microalbuminuria. If your albumin to creatinine ratio is greater than 300, you have macroalbuminuria. So they looked at the incidence of that. They also calculated an EGFR using annual serum creatinine uh, measurements uh, with renal impairment defined as an EGFR of, of less than 60, um, which I think is what everybody would agree. That's where you start entering you know, uh, uh, chronic kidney disease stages and stuff like that. Patients in whom incident end-stage kidney disease is defined as dialysis, transplantation, or death from kidney disease were considered to have an outcome event as well. And then they looked at the, at, at, at the increase in albuminuria in these patients' renal impairment. So that's why I looked at, at, at renal outcomes. For neuropathic outcomes, they assessed diabetic peripheral neuropathy with the modified Michigan neuropathy neuropathic screening instrument, which yes, I'd never heard of either, uh, which includes a 15 uh, item uh, interviewer administered system, a symptom questionnaire. And then they also did a bilateral lower extremity clinical examination using ankle reflexes and vibratory sensations of the great toes, basically. Scores on this go from zero to eight with higher scores indicating more severe uh, neuropathy, basically. And they defined uh, diabetic neuropathy as a MNSI score of seven or greater, or an examination score of 2.5 is higher. And apparently this, 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 uh, this 
this scale has been validated in previous studies as they know in the trial. Cardiovascular outcomes were classified and adjudicated by a committee who did not know the treatment assignments or anything along those lines. Uh, they did uh, the kind of the standard two committee members reviewed an event and then if they couldn't read consensus they had a tiebreaker from a third, third investigator. They defined a major adverse cardiovascular event as time to first MI, stroke, or death from cardiovascular cause um, and, and uh, they then they counted as, as any cardiovascular disease uh, when one, any of those three things, unstable angina or heart failure warranting hospitalization or revascularization in any arterial bed. So I think a very complete assessment for both macro and microvascular uh, complications. They generally have the same stats, but the difference here, of course, is that they, um, uh, instead of looking at, at just uh, uh, glycemic control and age and, and body mass index, they looked at all that stuff too, but they also looked at the uh, incidence of, they stratified by presence of, of hypertension, dyslipidemia, uh, which was in most patients. They also looked at at um, um, uh, the prevalence of, of previous uh, cardiovascular disease, including stroke. Uh, um, and they also looked at patients who had previous diabetic neuropathy as well, because obviously they would, they would be probably worse on that scale anyway. As far as the outcomes, there was actually uh, uh, no major differences among the treatment groups in the cumulative incidence of, of moderate increased uh, uh, albuminuria. Um, the overall incidences were about uh, 2.57, 1.08, and 2.91 events per 100 patient years. And and, and, and to translate that into English, the, the cumulative incidence was about 15% across the board. So there was no differences between the four drugs that they added on the incidence of, of uh, increasing or worsening albuminuria. And again, about 15% in all the groups had that. Likewise, there was no major differences in the incidence of diabetic peripheral neuropathy. It was, it was very, very similar in about 20% of patients across uh, the, the uh, start of the study and then uh, reaching uh, un unbelievingly 70% of patients, again, across the board had some level of diabetic neuropathy at the end of the study. So just absolutely incredible number of patients who had diabetic neuropathy, far higher than I would have expected, really. So the, the author summarized that there was no material difference in any of the macro, macro, microvascular uh, complications that they were evaluated between the four drugs, and that overall the incidence was much higher than I think a lot of people expected for that. Um, and now that's, a, that's something that's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, previous studies like the DCCT study and uh, the uh, UKPDS study kind of noted that, that microvascular complications were associated with, with greater hemoglobin A1C reductions. I guess what I take away from the study is that really it doesn't matter what second medication you put on people. Uh, you know, even if, if you're not going to get their hemoglobin A1C under control, you're not going to decrease incidence of microvascular complications. So I wouldn't say this, this you know, calls some of those classical studies into question. It just basically uh, uh, tells us that the, the key piece of microvascular uh, complication development is control of A1C, and it doesn't really matter which drug you do to do that. It's seems to work kind of kind of across the board. There was some small differences in cardiovascular disease, however, and um, in, in, interestingly enough, well, maybe not interestingly enough, I think that we'd probably guess this, the GLP-1 drug ligulotide actually was the one that actually had a statistically significant decrease in any cardiovascular disease. None of the other drugs did. So large inglomipiride or citagliptin had no differences in major adverse cardiovascular uh, uh, events or any cardiovascular disease. Um, and the, the uh, hazard ratio for ligulotide was 0.71, and it did reach statistical significance. Now, again, that is the only differences they found. Um, the authors, are, you know, really point out that they don't feel like this should be definitive proof. The GLP-1 agonists reduce the incidence of cardiovascular disease in low-risk populations, you know, and we know for a fact that GLP-1 drugs do in high-risk populations. But they note that again, this parallels the benefit that they've seen with other GLP drugs in patients with higher cardiovascular risk. So, again, I don't think this means we need to preferentially pick out GLP-1 drugs. 
in all patients with with as your as your second medication. Again, noting that this was you know only one of the the real differences between the four medications, and that I think really you know the only way to really know that would be to do another a different randomized control trial just looking at at GLP one agonists, especially because we're not really using that GLP one agonist as much anymore. We're tending to use some of the more second generation ones. And would you find that benefit in, in low risk patients? I suspect you probably would, but I think you'd need a separate randomized control trial to kind of deal with that. So, so again, kind of summarizing, you know, uh, when you've got someone on full dose metformin, whether you add a, a GOP-1 drug, a, uh, a DPP-4 inhibitor, insulin, or sulfonylurea doesn't seem to make a whole lot of difference in the difference of a patient's re, uh, getting a hemoglobin of less than 7%. Yes, there's some small statistical differences, but, but on the whole, anywhere between 65 and 75% of your patients are, at least in this study, did not get that diet goal with the second drug added on, and the vast majority of patients needed th further therapy to, to try and get their A1C under control. And again, no matter what medication you you were on, it didn't seem to make a difference in the development of, of microvascular complications. And in fact, peripheral neuropathy was, was very common by the end of the study. And there might be a signal uh, that, that the GOP-1 drugs might have a slight benefit in cardiovascular outcomes. But again, I think that needs to be looked at in, in further studies. So that's a mouthful. I know that's a lot of information to kind of spew at you guys, uh, but hopefully that, that kind of made sense. And so to help us make sense of this, uh, again, I welcome back Jake Galdo, who's a community pharmacist and has a lot of interest in diabetes and, and, and really is kind of an expert in the area. So Jake, you know, what do you think of all, all these two studies? Well, Jeff, you know, you've done a, an amazing job breaking down the intricacies of these studies in about 30 minutes for everybody. And as you started out, you, you pointed out that these have created a lot of buzz. They're all over the, the internet. They're all yep. over social media. based talking about them. Um, and I'm going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate or a Debbie Downer. <laughs> and I'm going to say that this feels like a whole lot of something about nothing. You know, it, it almost feels like when the study was initially designed years ago, it was a good study. It was a good idea. But then we have a lot of sunk cost fallacy that's happening. We dug our toes or our heels into the sand and we didn't cancel this study when we realized that it's not really helping the literature all that much. Right. So I feel like we're, we're making a big deal out of something that's not actually a big deal anymore. Right. Case in point, you pointed it out, the four drugs that we were looking at, insulin, sulfonylurea, uh, DPD-4 and a GLP-1, that's not kind of standard of care right now. Exactly. The other thing that you, you pointed out that I thought was really interesting, you know, from your interpretation of the, the study and what you read from the study, is that a lot of patients, you know, with diabetes probably should start on multiple agents. Well, that's something we've known for decades now with the Omnis Octet from Ralph DeFranzo. You know, we, we see the pathogenesis of hypoglycemia is happening from eight dysfunctions within our organ systems, be right. it too much uh, lipolysis or too much glucon. There's like so much going on. And so, you know, the Omnis Octet philosophy is that we actually start patients on three agents. And initially, it was a GLP-1 metformin and TZD. Well, now it actually is... Uh, uh, probably a metformin, GLP-1, and a, a SCLT-2. So we're looking at covering all eight of those, those organ systems that are in dysfunction. So again, looking at this, these studies that are saying, you know, how do we compare the outcomes associated with we have metformin and then add something else? Good study design, good question, but I feel like it's, it's almost getting slapped in the face by the trees without looking at the forest and all the other copious data that we have out there. I mean, you just, you, you mentioned it a moment ago that liraglutide or GLP-1 with a subgroup analysis showed us that it had some cardiovascular benefit. Yeah, that's what we saw from all those MACE studies and those right. cardiovascular 
outcome studies uh, that were, were mandated by the FDA for diabetes agents, which is why our entire ADA treatment algorithm now says we'll start with the comorbid conditions and provide drugs based on these situations, where in the, the most recent version of our guidelines, we still have metformin as like, yeah, you can start it, but it's not like thou shall start it. It's like, right. yeah, you can, but not you have to, which again, draws into question the external validity of these two studies because they're designed as metformin plus. Right. Um, so I know that that I just came out swinging after you did a really nice job explaining these studies and talking about their their impact. And I just I came at you with left field. Uh, but I feel like when we think about the care for persons with diabetes, it can be metformin plus, but a lot of it now is just focused on what can they get with their cost? What is the patient preference on a route of administration, right? Because a lot of the data says GLT-1 could probably be first line or right. insulin to some extent can be first line, but patients don't want to start with injections hypothetically. Right. Well, I mean, and, and I, I, I agree with you. I, you know, it's, I, that's always the problem with long studies, right? I mean, it's always an, always an issue is that, you know, if you're going to do a study that has, you know, uh, you know, really probably a, it's a five-year study, but by the time you recruit people and, you know, people go in and out of the study, you know, you're probably talking, twice that and that's almost what happened here right they started in 2013 and it's just being published in 2022 and you know when you when you're looking at a, a, a time horizon of, of eight to ten years in especially something as dynamic as diabetes you can pretty much guess that the standard of care is, is going to change in 10 years and that's exactly what's happened so you're right I think you know I, I agree with that criticism I agree that you know when they started this study they used what was standard of care but now we're 10 years later and you know you have a whole new class of medications that have been you know demonstrably shown to improve outcomes and, and microvascular and macrovascular complications. Um, and, and that really has changed the game. You have a difference in how ADA basically says, and I agree with you. I mean, when this study started, everybody was in agreement that unless you had a contraindication, everybody got started on metformin and they backed off, a little, at least ADA has backed off a little on that. So I, I, I agree with that. That being said, at least in my world and for what I've seen from my physicians, they're still starting metformin in just about everybody. And I think it's less about, uh, uh, you know, that metformin is a great drug and more that it's just cost. It's, it's cost effective, right? You know, a lot of these patients, you know, their insurance or they can afford an SCL2 drug or a GLP-1 medication. And so everyone's like, well, let's start with metformin. You know, most people tolerate it. You know, you always get a lot of bang for your buck as lower, as far as lowering hemoglobin A1C, you know, so that's the way to go. So I, you know, I, I agree with you absolutely that, that, that the, the standard of care has changed, but I think that the, starting with more metformin, at least in my neck of the woods, seems to still be pretty common as, as a first-line agent in, in, I'd say, the, the overwhelming majority of patients with new diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. I, you know, I guess what it's going to take is, is and I, I saw a little blurb um, just a, a little while ago that there was a cost-benefit analysis looking at the SGL2 drugs in type 2 diabetes, and even noting the benefits, they said that that the, that the overall cost of the SGL2 drugs, as far as, as lowering hemoglobin A1c, would have to drop, the price of the drug would have to drop at least 50 to 70% for it to be to be considered, you know, cost effective. And of course, that's not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, I think even the first GOP-1 drugs aren't slated to go generic for another couple of years. And of course, I'm sure the companies are going to fight those that those patent losses tooth, tooth and nail. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. So, you know, I, I, th I think those are all fair criticisms of, 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 of the study. And I think that's the risk you take when you're when you're doing long studies that take years and years to do. So anything else you'd like to, any observations you'd like to make? Yeah, you know, I, I'd like to, to point out that your your cost effectiveness is a huge, huge thing. I think the other aspect of this is it reminds me of the, the conversations we've had in the past about uh, asthma specifically and guideline concordant care. 
And so this just kind of raises the attention uh, that we can focus more on client coordinate care and how do we get closer to that. But I think the, the, the positive takeaway Right, because because I won't be your Debbie Downey Downer towards the end. We gotta we gotta uh, treat a trial like an Oreo. You got good, bad, good. Exactly. And so apparently, I just called the center of the Oreo bad. Yeah. I don't know. If everyone <laughs> agree with that. Well, that's a bad analogy. Um, I want an uh uh-uh Oreo where it's backwards. But the kind of theme that I think is wonderful is with these studies, we see that there is no major difference in treatment modalities, which means patient choice is huge. And it also means that you're not doing a bad job as a provider if you choose one thing over another. And I think that there's a lot to be said about ensuring that we feel like we've done a good job in the care that we deliver. And this shows that there are multiple modalities to get us to that same outcome, which are all beneficial to the patient. Right. And, and I, I agree with that. And I think that, 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 you know, it, you know, for me to be a, a bit of a, of a buzzkill here that, you know, it, you know, we've got a long way to go, right. That, that, you know, again, the vast majority of patients that, you know, um, had a, had an A1C of, of greater than 7%. And, you know, you're right. It didn't really matter which medication they put. There were some mild differences between them, but on the whole, at least two thirds of your patients are, are, are going to, are going to end up having an A1C that's not a goal. And, and again, you know, there's, the, as, as anyone, knows who deals with diabetes care uh, it's a it's often a struggle to get to get patients to deal to do some of the you know the diet and exercise control that really needs to happen i always tell my students that that really the only the only patients with diabetes who truly get under control and stay there are patients who really take ownership of the disease and say you know i've got to do my part to, to, to make sure that my, my my glycemic goals are met and the ones who just like continue to do whatever they were doing and keep hoping we're gonna pile medication upon medication to get the right ones under control we're usually destined for failure in those patients and I think it points out that that you know again, in, in, unless you do have some significant uh, changes to your weight or significant changes to, to how you eat and exercise, diabetes is, is a progressive disease. And, and I, again, sometimes I think we forget that that you know most patients are going to get worse as time goes on, not better. And and um, especially as they get older and their insulin resistance goes up, it's an upward battle. And, and uh, you know, hopefully, medications like you know the, the GLP-1 drugs that have you know significant weight loss associated with them, stuff like that. May, may help arrest that. But of course, we're not going to know the answer to those questions for years. So, well, Jake, I appreciate you being on um, and giving us your, your perspective. I, like I, said, I, I think your, your, your criticisms of the study are, are, are right on target. So I totally agree with that. So thank you again for, for being on. Thank you for having me. Not at all. So well, that's it for, for this uh, uh, episode of Game Changers. Um, thanks for listening. We went a little over this time than what we usually do, but, but hopefully uh, you've enjoyed listening to it. Again, if you like what you hear, hit that uh, like button, hit the subscribe button, and again, uh, head over to CE Impact. Help us keep the lights on by considering subscribing to this uh, program or some of the other great uh, CE programs they have there for both providers and pharmacists. We will see you next week, but until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Information to claim your CE credit is in the show notes. Please subscribe for all episodes. And if you love Game Changers, give us a review. Tune in next week for another clinical practice game changer.